Coming to you from the unseasonably chilly shores of the Arkansas River, it's Coronapocalypse 2020, your audio acuity for the viral age. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. It's Simon, back for more updates about this coronavirus thing. Yes, I know I haven't been posting podcasts in about a week. I've been sheltered at home like many of you, so I have no good excuse other than to say life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. So today I have something special, a theme in two parts. I'm going to be talking about testing. It's not just for school anymore, which is out for summer. That's a little too on the nose. Anyway, part one, what are the tests for coronavirus all about? That's coming up. And then what is the mystery behind why America failed its big exam in part two? So stick around while I drop you some knowledge. We are all just people seeing charts and numbers. We are all the people behind the numbers. It's the start of a new month, and with it, we have entered a new phase of the pandemic. Most of Americans are now locked down in some form of stay-at-home self-quarantine, and along with that, are no longer in the workforce. In the last two weeks, nearly 10 million people filed for unemployment, 65,000 first-time registered just in Oklahoma, those who could get past the crashed website and hours on hold. Worldwide, as of today, there are more than a million confirmed cases of COVID-19, and nearly a quarter of those are now from the U.S., which blew past 200,000 cases in the last two days. These are confirmations based on expanded testing, so they represent only a fraction of the number of actual infections in the community. But these are the only numbers we have right now, which is what I'm going to be talking about. But first... We're going to be heading down that rabbit hole of how testing for the coronavirus works. Be prepared. It took me a week to digest this, and even after cramming all night, I'm not sure that I have it all down. So, for the lab techs out there, forgive me if I mess the science up, because testing, it's no game. When numbers represent sickness and death, no one wants to be or no. So how is testing for the coronavirus done? The fact is, very few of us so far have had the chance to get tested. So let's delve into the current technology and what you can expect. First, we have to distinguish between the two basic kinds of tests, the blood test and the molecular test, which is currently the standard diagnostic to directly detect the virus. The less reliable is what's known as a serological assay, literally a blood serum test, which looks for antibodies formed by the immune system in response to the virus. One such test goes by the technical name enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, also called ELISA. It's a fairly simple test. Relies on a phlebotomy technician to draw a blood sample, which can then be processed without the use of any fancy machines. The typical cost might be around $10, and it can be run in minutes instead of days that it now takes to get back the results from the much more complex molecular test that's being commonly used, and which I'll get to in a moment. But here's the problem, which should be obvious. The blood test only detects antibodies after an infection has triggered an immune response. 
Thus, in the early stages of infection, it wouldn't be likely to detect the virus. Likewise, if the test isn't well-designed, it might detect other cold-like coronaviruses rather than the specific one behind COVID-19. But in the case of a symptomatic patient, this could be run immediately at the doctor's office without having to send out samples to a lab, and you would know within minutes whether you were infected. Moreover, the test could be a tool to get a better handle on the scope of the pandemic. If used widely, the antibody test should detect those in a community who have had the virus, recovered from it, and are now at least temporarily immune to it. That would give officials a much better idea of how far the virus has spread and whether we have reached any level of herd immunity, allowing us to reopen institutions and have people go back to work. The FDA has approved the first of these serological tests only today by biotech company Celex of North Carolina, which can provide results in 15 to 20 minutes. Celex's version looks sort of like a take-home pregnancy test, relies on just 10 microliters, less than a drop of blood or serum, to activate a test strip which shows lines in the presence of two types of immunoglobin antibodies, the kind that would be present after the coronavirus has activated the immune system in the body. And while that's the first that's approved, dozens of other companies have started production and distribution of their own tests to hospitals and labs under the FDA's emergency use authorization, which requires them only to carry a notification, this test has not been reviewed by the FDA. The CDC itself is developing such an antibody test and has put out a notice that they need blood samples from people who have been at least 21 days from the start of symptoms. But other countries aren't waiting. In the UK, 3.5 million of such antibody tests were ordered by the British government last week to be taken at home, and they're being distributed through Amazon and local pharmacies. And in the U.S., in a first-of-its-kind mass testing experiment, the entire population of San Miguel County, Colorado, where Telluride is, 8,200 people are being offered the antibody test for free by United Biomedical. It helps, of course, that the co-CEOs of the biotech have a home in the county. So we can see, while not widely available yet, antibody tests have the potential of changing the way that the virus is being handled, which up to this point has relied on a more complex and time-consuming diagnostic known as the reverse transcription real-time polymerase chain reaction, a mouthful which unfortunately doesn't have a cute acronym like ELISA, but is referred to as RRT-PCR. This is the test that is now the standard tool for diagnosing whether a person has the COVID-19 virus or not. But let's break down what it actually means. The PCR part is polymerase chain reaction. It's the technique to copy or amplify a specific sequence of molecules that make up DNA. And this amplification is necessary to detect a virus because the amount of genetic material, obviously, that can be extracted is so small. PCR was invented in the 1980s and now forms the basis of much of biomedical research, gene sequencing, analysis, as well as forensics and disease diagnostics. The process happens inside fancy laboratory machines with cool-sounding names like the Roche Light Cycler, Applied Biosystems Quant Studio, the Keogen Rotor Gene. And it basically takes a test tube full of various building blocks, a snippet of DNA, two primer chemicals to bind to the ends of a molecular sequence for targeting, an enzyme, the polymerase, to handle the duplication process, along with some essential salts, ions, and free nucleotides, the 
end part of DNA. These are heated and cooled over and over inside the machine to give the chain reaction part the energy needed to amplify, duplicate the specific section of DNA being targeted. The primers are what guide that targeted section. They are snippets of DNA chosen by researchers to most likely be unique to a particular genetic code and not to change. And the primers in the PCR mix bind to the newly organized molecule at specific points during that duplication process. As part of this amplification, fluorescent chemical markers called probes are included in the mix, which light up as the chain reaction starts to take effect. And these are measured or quantified by the PCR machine during the process. That's the real-time part. Now, those of you who remember your high school biology should know that DNA is a double helix molecule. It has basically two duplicate strands that wind around each other in a twisty way. But coronaviruses, like the one responsible for COVID-19, have their genetic material in the form of a single strand of RNA, and because of this, in order to make the PCR work, the RNA has to be turned into DNA. And that's where the reverse transcription part comes in. The RNA gets converted into a matching set of DNA so that it can be copied. All of this takes place in about four to six hours, mostly done automatically in the PCR machine. And once the process is completed, there could be up to 100 billion copies of the targeted sequence which by that point makes it easy to measure. If after the PCR runs, the machine has counted up a bunch of fluorescent flashes during the amplification, then we know the virus was present in a particular sample. But to get to that point, of course, lab technicians need a sample to test. So here's how that works. It starts with a nasopharyngeal swab, basically a long Q-tip with a polyester fiber top, which goes deep into your nose until it hits the pharynx. That's the upper part of the throat, about an inch and a half deep. It's twisted around in there until it gets nice and covered with throat stuff and then pulled out. It's then broken in half with the business end put into a collection tube for transport to a lab. The tube itself has a saline solution, which absorbs the nasal sample and is later extracted and purified in lab. The major holdup, of course, are the labs, which have a limited number of technicians available to handle the samples and a limited number of machines which can process them. And this is why the time to get a test back was up to a week. Back in January, when the virus was first being investigated, the Center for Disease Control created its own protocol to diagnose the novel coronavirus on its own real-time PCR platform. In their case, it was the applied biosystem Quant Studio 7 Flex. But the kicker was the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, is responsible for validating and authorizing testing, and they only approved the very specific set of tools used by the CDC, which meant for the first month of testing, all samples had to be sent to Atlanta to the CDC to be checked. And that's what I'll be talking about next time, how we got into the testing mess and how we're slowly coming out of it behind every other country in the world. All just people seeing charts and numbers. We are all the people behind the numbers. When numbers represent sickness and death, trust the scientists. So that was episode six. I hope you were able to stick around through these sciencey bits, because next time I'll be delving into the current state of testing in the U.S. Until then, keep your hands washed and wear a mask, but don't take your health advice from this guy. The masks, it's going to be really a voluntary thing. You can do it. You don't have to do it. I'm choosing not to do it, but some people may want to do it, and that's okay.